You are listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. My guest is Tom Pickering, Vice Chairman at Hills & Company, who served with distinction as U.S. Ambassador to many countries, including Russia, Jordan, and the United Nations. His visit today to Dallas-Fort Worth was made possible through a grant from the World Affairs Councils of America. Welcome, Ambassador Pickering. Thank you, Jim. I'm delighted to be with you. Throughout the presidential campaign, now President-elect Trump consistently stated that he would tear up the Iran deal, also known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, a position that you oppose. If you were now in Trump Tower instead of here in Dallas, what would your advice be? I would say two things. First. I respect your concerns. No deal is ever perfect, and any deal can be made better. Making a good deal a lot better doesn't start with tearing it up. It starts with pushing ahead. And I think there is a now a unique opportunity to take the central elements of the Iran deal, particularly the restrictions on enrichment and those on plutonium, and use those to create a global standard of practice by treaty that will concern and indeed cover all countries. Now, we have countries like Brazil or Argentina or South Korea or others that may want to enrich in the future, and they should do it as safely as we can make it, mm -hmm. and the Iran deal sets a very high standard that way. Doing that, I think, would accomplish a number of objectives, but the most important would be that any such deal should be without time limits, and it would give Iran an opportunity to be right in the middle of the international community where they now ought to be in terms of what they've done. They shouldn't be isolated and castigated with some separate status that would continue forever like a dunce cap. And that would be clear benefits. Be clear benefit to everybody. And that would mean that the 15-year limitation in the president agreement would go on with respect to the enrichment controls and then maybe later on plutonium. But it would have other useful and important nonproliferation advantages around the world. Granted, what you say has a lot of benefits, but Iran continues to be a nuisance, a dangerous one, supporting Hezbollah, for instance. So what can or should be done to constrain their support of terrorism? I think that we can do a number of things, and we are doing those as much as we can unilaterally, preventing or shutting off the supply of weapons and technology in areas that we're concerned about and areas that we share a concern with Israel. You'll have noticed in the Middle East that whenever there's a Russian shipment of something really sensitive, mm -hmm. the Israelis manage to take it out. And of course, this is good business for the Russians because they can keep sending stuff and the Israelis <coughs> keep taking it out and it's good for the Russian economy. But in the end, I think it blocks something that we should be blocking because it presents a difficulty and a danger. In the long run, the really interesting question for all of us, is Iran prepared to become a responsible member of the international community or to live forever in some kind of isolated special status? And the international community, in my view, has not got religious objections to Iran, which is one of their principal motivating factors. They may think so, but I don't believe that is the case. There may be people who have such objections, but I don't see an anti-Islamic policy as a central focus of the American interest in Iran. Secondly, are they worried about regime change and revolutions promoted from the outside? Of course they are. 
But over a period of time, I think they have become much more understanding of the fact that the U.S. has objections to things that they're doing that aren't part of what the international community asks and expects, whether they're Muslims or Buddhists or Hindus or Roman Catholics or whatever. So I think that that's an opportunity we offer Iran. And it will take diplomacy to fix it, and it won't happen easily. But I think the combination of a stern policy to push back and the continued activity to open a door that we want them to walk through mm -hmm. is a good policy. And it will take time, but I think it can work. And it's so much better than the ideas of bombing them or going to war or whatever else might be the alternatives. And we all know that. And I don't see any interest in the people of this country, with some rare exceptions, in entering now a new third war in the Middle East with a country that's several times the population and perhaps several times the capacity of Iraq. Especially with the risk to the Gulf. Exactly let, right. Let me draw on your experience as United States Ambassador to the United Nations. The governor of South Carolina, Nikki Haley, has just been nominated, and clearly she does lack foreign policy experience. Do you see this as a problem, or is it perhaps even an opportunity, and what might she do to strengthen her bench? Well, there's no question at all that one has to be honest and realistic that the New York job as I knew it and as I have followed it closely since the years when I left it, is a heavily foreign policy important job. It is not just a kind of a grin and grip job, if I could put it that way. Mm -hmm. And there are important questions that are considered in the UN. If someone is appointed who isn't a deep specialist, and clearly she's not. And most of the recent ambassadors have been they specialists. They have been. Then there are professionals who can help. She has right at her command four top jobs inside the U.S. mission to the U.N. that she should arrange with the president-elect, that she should select people, either professionals or people deeply experienced, that could help her and advise her on that. The other aspect of the U.N., and there are many others, but one of them is obviously voting. And the General Assembly is like a big state legislature in many ways. There aren't parties, but there are trends and tendencies. Mm -hmm. She should know how to deal with that from her experience. So let her bring that together. But my view is that you need in New York to pay attention across the spectrum of the 191 countries that are there, as hard as it is. And any good, successful American governor should have that steeped in their blood. Just this past Monday, a few days ago, the Israeli parliament voted to legalize certain settlements, a move that was opposed by the United States. Do you think there's any life left in the prospect of a two-state solution? My view is that if there is not a two-state solution, the other alternative is a one-state solution. And Israel is not prepared to accept a one-state solution where the one state would be Jewish and democratic because the population would soon be non-Jewish. And the Palestinians are not prepared to accept a one-state solution where the state would be Jewish and non-democratic, which is clearly what at least a significant number of Israelis would prefer. So we're back to the two-state solution. Secondly, there is, in my view, little if any chance in the foreseeable future that a negotiated solution will emerge until there are some changes that can take place. Some of those we have little influence over, but the aging leadership in Palestine over a period of time will be replaced. My view is there ought to be a coming together, despite our deep objections to Hamas, of the people in Gaza and the people in the West Bank to find new leadership. Some of that leadership may be in Israeli jails right now. 
now, and that's another problem. In Israel, either I think Prime Minister Netanyahu has to see his way clear to working a deal, which in many ways would assure his place in Israeli history if he can get the right sort of deal. My own view has been it may be time for President Obama in these waning weeks of the administration to put out some principles to govern a deal. There have been very few U.S. ideas put formally on the table, if I could put it that way, but much discussed behind the scenes. But maybe a a public statement by the president, maybe a declaration or yeah. a communication, maybe even a UN resolution. I would certainly not make it mandatory. And I see this not as something that will have immediate effect, but I see that this is something will have a long-term effect because right now each side's aspirations are well beyond the capacity to be delivered in a fair and balanced agreement. And we just have a, another minute or two, and I wanted to ask you about the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Bill. Mm -hmm. As a professional diplomat, how do you see that As playing out? As a professional out? diplomat, my sense of the coin of the realm for diplomats and for others representing the country overseas is they should not be subject to the kinds of pressures that a foreign government could be bring against them if they don't have the immunities that are there. And so taking away immunities from foreign diplomats in the United States or foreign countries in the United States, even if they do heinous things, and this is only on terms of the charges that they may have done. There's not a proven case here yet. Mm -hmm. And I should uh, add would that this difficult. refers to this case of the 9-11 uh, and the Saudis. The, the large number of Saudi <coughs> nationals who participated in, in the 9-11 attack. As far as I know, and including the one report, the release of which was delayed for a long period of time, there isn't a case there. So it's a combination here, I think, of looking down the road at what it might mean for our own capacity to be able to conduct foreign relations with the kind of immunity that we have to have in foreign countries, not to be subject to them. And to me, that's an, a very important question that shouldn't be circumscribed. Last question is that you did chair the Department of State's Accountability Review Committee that examined in detail the Benghazi attacks. What lessons can we glean from that report? And secondly, did the process affect your thinking about legislative oversight? Yes, a couple of things. One, I think we learned that there were deficiencies in dealing with the security problems in Benghazi. And we identified, as we were required to by the law, the people who were deficient in making those decisions. And they dealt with a lot of things that I think were expedients introduced to keep the place open at a time when it was under deep pressure. Uh, and many people don't realize there was only one American substantive officer there at any one time. So it was not, put it this way, a place of high exposure. I think all of the subsequent arguments about emails <laughs> and about was it planned and not planned were not things that we had to investigate. We had to investigate the security circumstances that put in place the posture we had when the attack took place. And my sense was that we still, I believe, did a good job, and I haven't seen any information that says we didn't do a good job, and I've tried to examine that very carefully and with very much an open mind. And I've always said, if new information emerged that indicated we made a mistake, I would be the first to join in saying, yes, we made a mistake. Because the truth here is, it's the safety of our diplomats in the future and our national interests that prevail, not the question of whether Mr. X or Mrs. Y did a particular report and that report somehow has to last forever. In referring to legislative oversight, 
I went through a process. I was asked to depose myself in private. I went through hearings. This comes with the job. I didn't agree with the questioning on the legislative oversight, but I didn't have that responsibility. They did. I think that they worked very hard. I think they were heavily motivated in a Congress that was dominated by the opposition party in seeing whether, in fact, this process could be turned into something that one way or another would affect the outcome of the elections. I don't think it was, but that was something that I was not used to, if I could put it this way, as an American diplomat who frequently testified to the Congress with the sense that we were both interested, despite perhaps tough questioning, in the future of our country. Thank you very much, Ambassador Tom Pickering. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org.